Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I hope you've had a delightful Christmas or winter solstice or whatever event you may be celebrating at this closing of the year. Our final guest of 2020 is Michael Marshall Smith, who has a brand new best of collection of short fiction, simply titled The Best of Michael Marshall Smith. It's out from Subterranean Press on the 31st of December, and it looks back over his 30-year writing career, from his first story, which won nothing less than the British Fantasy Award, all the way to the present day. It's a wide-ranging collection of tales that slips across genres, across tones, and frequently across oceans. I was completely new to Michael's writing, and I've got to say I was utterly delighted and blown away by it. As you'll hear in my somewhat gushing tones, reading these stories felt quite like finding Stephen King again for the first time. A comparison I think you'll hear Michael himself is quite comfortable with. These are chronicles of small town life on both sides of the Atlantic. They have wit, charm and and plenty of warmth. As I've said many times, that warmth is something that I love in horror. Um, But just as you're about to get comfortable, these stories pull the rug away and leave you winded on the floor. There are some very dark gems in here. And Michael gives us all the good stuff about where those ideas come from, why he writes the way he does, and all those details that literary voyeurs like us want to know. If that wasn't enough for you, then keep listening after the interview for my look back over the best horror of 2020. The all-time top 10 list from last week went down pretty well, so I thought I'd follow up and further beg your indulgence with more of my own personal rankings. So come with me for one more trip in this maddest of mad years. We're off to walk some city streets in LA to delve into dark corners of London or to the outer rim of the universe with only a talking cat for company. Let's talk scared. Hi, Michael, and thanks for talking scared with me. How are you? Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm good. I mean, same as everybody else, putting up with various levels of weirdness in the the world. But apart from that, I'm doing very well. Well, where in the world actually are you? Where are you speaking to us from? Uh, I'm talking from Santa Cruz, which is a kind of smallish university town, about 70 miles south of San Francisco on the west coast of California. So we're talking now in early December, and, and I believe that California is undergoing some fairly rigorous lockdown at the moment. Is that right? It's we've been back and forth on it. I mean, the local area has actually been very, very good. Santa Cruz County has 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 done pretty well over the course of it. But I think with Thanksgiving and also just COVID fatigue, people getting to the point of thinking, well, surely I still I don't still have to do this like everywhere else. It's drifting. And it's you know, there's a limit to how fine grained you can be in the approach to this. So, yeah, I feel there's another lockdown rumbling towards us pretty soon, unfortunately. Yeah, well, fingers crossed everything's okay. I mean, you speak about COVID fatigue. I've asked every single person how they're getting on with that in like the last three months. So I think I'm going to just move on. I'm glad you're well, but you're here today (laughs) digitally to talk about your new best of collection, simply titled The Best of Michael Marshall Smith. Um, It's due out on the last day of the year and it's published by Subterranean Press. I'm looking at it now and it's an incredibly handsome, really substantial book. Is it going to be a special edition? 
It is a kind of special edition. I mean, the market for sort of short stories, as you probably know, in the sort of general publishing market has always been a little bit thin. Um, in the kind of fields that we're interested in, horror, science fiction, and so forth, it's also where some of the very best work happens, I think. And so, you know, one of one of the great things about the field is that there are these kind of more not the major publishers who have the sort of time and energy and knowledge to put out you know good collections of short stories which is i say i think it's kind of the backbone of the field in some way and i've, I've worked with subterranean before and they're great they produce beautiful looking books they get them out there so there's kind of no better home for this collection really great yeah as i say it looks beautiful the cover is like possibly my favorite book cover of the year it took me a while to notice the little spectral figure on the swing i think it's great it was an artist called Stephen Coitel, who I'd never come across before, and I was looking for certain types of, of imagery because, you know, often horror is presented in rather kind of obvious ways visually. And what I liked about his stuff is that it's, as you say, it, it, it takes a moment. You've got, you've got to see what's going on. Yeah, it's really eerie. And it's also very kind of gritty. Like That, that looks like every swing set from my childhood on a wet November day. So, it, it, yeah, it speaks yes. something in me. Um, so I normally ask authors to summarise their book, but that that's never really possible with a collection, um, certainly not a retrospective collection. So instead, can we kick off by you telling us how this how this came to be? What was the route to putting together a best of retrospective? I mean, to be absolutely honest, it, it was it was uh, Bill who, who runs Subterranean asking me. I mean, I've been sort of thinking about it for a while because I've been writing short stories for, I guess, about, you know, it's coming up for 30 years. I've published just short of 100 of them. So it's, you know, it's it, it covers not just a body of work, but it also a sort of very significant sort of chunk of my life. And the idea of actually going back and saying, Okay, which stand the test of time? Which are the ones that I'm still sort of, you know, semi proud of? Because my, my writing to a degree has, has changed, I think, in the short story form. Initially, I, I used to write quite a long, quite a lot of quite long short stories, um, and that was before I was writing novels. Often now, that kind of lengthier prose has wound up being in the novel form, and so the short stories are not exclusively, but often more an attempt to sort of come in under the radar fairly quickly and get one kind of idea or atmosphere or character established. And doing a best of collection gave me the chance to sort of look back over that and also to sort of arrange them in a way that hopefully, you know, shows shows a variety and helps the stories support each other through their through their differences. Certainly does. I mean, I wondered right away what the editing process is for something like this. So who chooses the stories? Was that you or was it Subterranean Press? That was that was collaborative. I mean, basically, um, I think we both came up with a list of stories and then we went back and forth on them. There were some that Bill thought should be in there that I hadn't thought of. Um, there were a couple that he hadn't thought of that I thought, well, for one reason or another, um, <clears throat> because it's, it's you know, something with the title best of, in a way, it is bound to be sort of seen as a sort of retrospective. Um, and there are two things you want to do there that you obviously want to put your best foot forward in terms of the best stories in terms of people's response to them, most successful stories, shall we say. But there are also stories that I, as a kind of writer have felt that represented a particular stage in what I was doing or that I was particularly happy with at the time, but didn't really get a lot of attention. And so we just kind of tried to <clears throat> try to figure out a, a balance between that, also balance between length, balance between types of subject. It's difficult because, you know, as a writer, 
like any any quotes you know creative you tend to have kind of themes and types of thing that you that you return to like a kind of dog worrying a bone and so that there are certain threads that run throughout but it's trying to balance that with kind of studs of difference as well i, I was kind of quite surprised by how ranging they were um in genre and tone and other things did you have a certain criteria in your mind for what you wanted to include when you were into this only only that that I read them now and not and not feel embarrassed by them to be honest i mean there there are some that there are some some short stories that you get to the end of and you think okay that you know that that works I nailed what I was trying to do there um there are other short stories that actually have surprised me by how how much of a response they've got um and so really it was just to try to and also as you say to try and give a a, a suggestion of range because i'm in what I've done, both in terms of short stories and, and novels, and pretty much everything in terms of writing, I've I've been all over the place. I've written, I've written horror, I've written supernatural thrillers, I've written science fiction, I've written written stuff that is effectively mystery. Um, some of it's got humour, some of it doesn't, and I'm <clears throat> that's what I'm kind of all about, to be honest, because I think there are certain themes that are recurrent within different genres um and so to try to find a way to express those in different ways whilst hopefully fundamentally having the same voice and sensibility running through them i wanted a best of collection to kind of represent that rather than being one note um i mean it's like one of the reasons for example i love reading uh horror anthologies because you get particularly if you've got a good editor someone like stephen jones or ellen datlow you get a range of material in different voices and different ideas, and it just shows the breadth of what one particular genre can do. Well, that's that's what's been proved to me by doing this show. I mean, I've spoken to people who, who work in so many different fields. You know, they're all nominally horror writers, but their books could not be more different. And yeah, like you say, and, and a collection, particular collection spanning, you know, 30 years really demonstrates that. Mm. But what, what I want to address the elephant in the room a little bit before we go any further, um, because... You know, you are a man of many names. All of them are Michael. Um, so for those who don't know, you write under various guises. There's Michael Marshall, there's Michael Marshall Smith, there's Michael Rutger. Um, let's get this out of the way first of all. Why have you opted for those various kind of writerly selves? I mean, to be honest, it, it was not a personal choice. It, it's a publishing choice. The original short stories that I wrote, and in fact, still for short stories, I write under Michael Marshall Smith. That's what I feel to be my kind of closest to home name. Um, but for reasons that are obscure and I didn't understand at the time, the first novel I wrote was actually more science fictional. Um, and so I'd written the short stories under Michael Marshall Smith. I've written those three novels under Michael Marshall Smith. And then I wrote The Straw Men, which was a present day, largely consensual reality, not supernatural, not horror as such, um, mystery, serial killer novel. And there was just a feeling from the publishers that that would be very confusing. Um, and so a last minute change was just to lop off the Smith. Um, and then I wrote a bunch of novels under Michael Marshall. I've actually written more novels under Michael Marshall than I have any other name. Um, I'm simply because I'm perverse. By the end of doing that, I was moving into writing stuff that actually could perfectly well have been under Michael Marshall Smith in terms of the fact that they were supernatural thrillers. Um, and then when I wrote The Anomaly a couple of years ago, again, it was different. That that again is more of a sort of, it didn't quite fit with either name and 
again the publisher said well would you consider doing this so you know it's it's just it's part of the vagaries of of, of getting published and staying published over what has thankfully been a <clears throat> i guess is now getting to be a relatively long period of time it's you you, you deal with the publishing angle of it as well there are very few writers who actually get away with doing whatever the hell they want whilst keeping one name um and if looking back if i'd been able to just stick to that one name it would have been great but it, it didn't work out that way i i i you know people tend to be able to spot whether or not not least because there's johnny and michael at the front whether or not it's me and and you know it is what it is at this stage yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, if, if if Stephen King had to create Richard Batman, then you know, I think we all perhaps need to give in to the the power of the pseudonym. I think, in terms of you know, it's it's a sort of you know, particularly now, there's a kind of branding element. Um, and as I say, there are very few writers. Uh, Neil Gaiman is is the one that always springs to mind, who are sufficiently identifiable as a creator that he can dot all over and do basically whatever he wants because it will always be of a superlative quality, and people will know that they will get that game and thing from them but it's very rare that someone can pull that off well indeed and today we're talking to you as michael marshall smith but i do have some questions towards the end of the interview about the michael rutger books only because i i read the anomaly last year and loved it had no idea you were the same person um until i looked up your website to find your contact details to arrange this interview and i was like oh okay but we'll have you, we'll have you back on the show at some point as Michael Rutger. But today we'll largely focus on Michael Marshall Smith. So sure. because because this is a, is a collection that spans so many years, and because you you include very generous story notes, I'm quite tempted to get more biographical in this interview than I than I do with a lot of authors where I'm talking about the you know the specifics of one novel. So the first thing that comes to mind is your fiction really spans the Atlantic Ocean quite a lot. This this collection jumps yeah. back and forward across the big pond. Can you clear up for me, what is your history with the UK and the US? So you're in the US right now. You've been back and forth, I believe, throughout your life. I have, yeah. I mean, I was born in the UK. Uh, my father was an academic and the, and the job he wanted was in America. So before I was one... We moved to um, Illinois, and we spent some years in Illinois. Then he moved to a different job in Florida. So we lived in the States basically until I was seven. Um, we then moved to South Africa for a year, and then we then moved to Australia for a year, and then finally we moved back to the UK. Um, <clears throat> but even though I then lived in the UK for a, a substantial period of time, basically my parents' good friends and contacts and where they felt comfortable um, was the USA. So again, very frequently during teens, um, we would come back there for sustained periods. And I also came back and visited at least once a year, basically every year after that. And so for a number of, and it's weird because when we find, you know, all the time that we spent living away when I was a kid, there was this overarching idea of, oh, well, we'll go back, quotes, home to the UK at some point. And so when we finally did, I thought, okay, now I'm home. This is where I'm from. And it took a while for me to realize that it actually didn't particularly feel that way. I guess because formative years were spent um, in the States and um, and then a good deal of time afterwards. And so I've always felt somewhere between the two um, and hoped there would there would come a point where I could spend you know more time in the States. I had anticipated kind of flipping back and forth between the two, but when you have a child, as I now do, that's obviously not feasible. And so you know we ended up coming up for, I guess it's nine years now, moving across 
um, to California, where we live extremely happily now. <clears throat> a lot of the earlier short stories actually tend to be set in London or around there because that's where I was living and working at the time. But the novels have pretty much always been set in the States, I think, possibly because at the time I was living in the UK and the States felt like a kind of imaginary place or a, or a home that I was I was exiled from or not living in. And so there was a kind of wish fulfillment element to that. Um, the which is now because I live here the whole time, actually the short stories are increasingly being set here as well. So basically it's it's because I've felt somewhere between the two throughout my life and felt comfortable in both places. I was going to ask you how you how you decide where to set your stories. Because in some of them there is a you know a, a cultural and geographical reason for setting it in one or the other. But some of them could work mm. to my to my mind quite well in, in either location. Do you do you have a feel for where a story should be set? Um I, I don't make the decision. It just announces itself as being set um in such and such a place. Um the very I mean, particularly in the novels, um, very often the location is is as much a character as any of the uh, ostensive characters are, and it's it's about that place. Um, as you say, often in the short stories, one could transport it somewhere else and just as easily have it set. Um, probably with fewer than one might think, though, actually, because often there's something to do with a kind of cultural or, or psychological mindset, which is often rooted in geography. But really, I mean, short stories announce themselves to me generally by a particular ar- a character or mood or idea. And implicit in that first inkling is where it's going to be. So I never make the decision. I never say, okay, here's an idea. Here's a story. Where shall I set it? That's always absolutely part of the initial idea when it arrives. Okay. So do you feel like you write differently when you're writing um, a set in the US or set in the UK? I'm, to a degree, yeah. I mean, obviously, one has to try and get the voice um, as as locally appropriate as possible, which I I don't do perfectly. I'm, I'm aware of that because I am sort of stuck between the two in some ways. Um, but... I don't know. I think I think I write slightly differently depending on the genre of the book or the specific subgenre of the story, which is again not something I ever try to particularly name or establish or differentiate. It just sort of happens. Um, I'm I'm quite you know this is probably gradually becoming clear. I'm 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 an intuitive or disorganized and chaotic writer. I basically just do do what it seems is the thing I should be doing, and and only seldom do I make concrete editorial decisions about okay well i'm sitting this here therefore it should be this kind of thing it's it's quite a sort of intuitive process for me i kind of feel my way into stuff whether it's a a short story or a novel in a first draft and then sometimes you'll go back and say okay well actually this doesn't quite work here therefore you'll need to adjust it um so no again it's not it's not something that i consciously approach the work with that's fine it's just when i was reading these stories they felt not they were from different authors, but they felt like very different styles. But yeah, I found quite a striking difference between the British set and the American set stories. I quite liked it. Mm. Before we move on from America, I've got to ask, but I, I follow you on Twitter. Um, and I'm I'm very... Oh, sorry. No, it's great. I, I, I very much enjoyed your tweets to and about Donald Trump in the last few weeks. Um, now, what, what I would say is, you seem far more sincerely angry than a lot of artists who are just doing the cool thing, which is mocking Donald Trump. You seem to have like a real gut level, visceral fury about this man. 
which is understandable. Yeah, how yeah. are you feeling about all that now? How are you feeling now? Is it? Is it? Do you feel relief? It's you know it's it's I mean we I, we were actually away we were down in Monterey when the day when you know people started AP and other news organisations started calling it for Biden, and it was such an extraordinary feeling that day, um, and now of course for the last however many weeks it is um, it is just it's it's kind of depressing what's happening now to be absolutely honest because there was a kind of righteous fury and resistance that happened during the four years, and now to see not only Trump, but to see the Republican Party just cravenly um, supporting delusional ideas, which <clears throat> you have gone on long enough now that they will now enter the mainstream. It will be one of those things that will be people who forever believe that that Trump somehow is going to be the president in exile, the, the, the forever king who had this <clears throat> his righteous victory stolen from him. And that worries me because I think one of the things that we've seen over the last four years is a kind of lifting of rocks underneath which views and ways of being, um, which have always existed, felt that they needed to be quiet about it. Now I think there's been a kind of process of validation and saying the quiet part out loud, which, sure, if one wants to know the truth about politics and about human nature is interesting, but I think it's going to have long-reaching effects that will go well beyond the the end of the trump administration in january but that's a bit of a dismal way of looking at it in general yes i am i am delighted that we will soon see the end of him at least as the person sitting in the white house um because you're right my my level of <clears throat> unhappiness shall we say at the political landscape over the last four years has been very genuine and i think you know if you're pretty mouthy on twitter about politics as i am you will inevitably regularly get people saying you know shut up and write why should we care I'm not going to read what you do anymore because I disagree with you politically. Um, and I think writing and the telling of stories needs to be fundamentally about the reality of what life is like. And politics is about people and it's about stories. It's not just about dry ideas. It's not just about ideological triggers. It's about why do people feel this way? What, what about their personal stories, about their local stories, about their national stories has brought them to these sets of views. And, you know, as, as, a, as a novelist and a short story writer and a screenwriter, that's what I do. I, t I try to tell stories about people and that's what politics should be. So I, d I don't see a clear division. Here in the UK, I mean, things are are not much better. That that phrase about the the, the lifting of rocks is, is a beautiful way to put it. It is that that strange validation that suddenly some things are, are back on the table that haven't been for decades. You know, for, for liberals like us, broadly defined, there's a kind of reality check um, which we needed um, because I remember, you know, when, when the Brexit vote came, my wife and I sat out on our deck with beers, you know, looking forward to hearing the whole thing kicked into touch as we assumed it would be. And then just getting more and more aghast as we realized what was going to happen. Um, and, you know, similar to the night where we gathered together with with other liberal friends ready to toast Hillary Clinton as the first female president of the United States and watching that. And it's like, you know, we can feel as strong and as secure in our views as we like, but one can't immediately dismiss everything the other side feels as being a, res a result of closet racism or stupidity. These, these for better or worse, are to a degree sincerely held views. And that's why I say I think some sort of approach that looks into the... the Every vote has a person behind it. Why are they casting their vote that way? And so I think it's it's important to try to understand that. What is a shame is that so much of the, the right at the moment is 
is promulgated by people who are cynical, who are grifters, who who are basically just trying to make a buck and and and, and create a brand around it, um, which I think is extraordinarily damaging. Anyway, we, we've we've wandered off into talking about politics. Don't don't get me talking because I will talk all night when it comes to this. I've already, already lost about a quarter of my listeners, so we better get back to the book. Um, so <laughs> to describe to discuss this best of in detail, do you have a favourite story in this collection? Oh, that's I mean, that's really, really hard because, um, you know, each each one of those stories is kind of like a butterfly that has been nailed to a board in that I can kind of with pretty much all of them almost remember the process of writing, not not in a, in a physical way, but I can I can remember the moment of kind of genesis of them. And they, it sounds ridiculous, but, they you know, they almost feel like like children in a way. It would be like me saying, well, you know my my middle child is the best child um in terms of favorite one i probably it would be um the man who drew cats simply because it was the first one i completed that was the first time i sat down wrote a whole story got to the end and thought oh so this is feasible this this is something that i can do um i'll do it again um, it had other advantages in that I was fortunate enough that it, it won an award for short story, which again was another huge confidence booster. Because at the beginning, you know, there are lots and lots of people who want to write, and one of the things that gets in the way is that idea of do I have the right to do this? What do is there any kind of sense or evidence that I'm not just totally wasting my time? And that act of completion um, of a first short story, and you give it to a couple of people, and, they, and they're, they're nice about it in what appear to be sincere ways, that's that's an incredibly important moment. And so if I had to choose a favourite, it would be for that kind of meta reason rather than necessarily feeling that I'd, um, that, that was the best story. Sorry for the mean question. When I think about it, it was a ridiculous question to ask. <laughs> but I, I'm glad you mentioned the man who drew cats because, as you said, it's, it's, it's crucial insofar as it was the start of your career. And and you glossed over, you know, it won an award. It, it won not one but two British Fantasy Awards in 1990. So your first ever short story won a very primo award, right? So and then also your first novel, I felt only forward was an award winner too, wasn't it? it won the August Derleth Award. It did, yes, yeah, and then it uh, it won the Philip K. Dick Award later as well. So yeah, I mean, my I, <laughs> achieving achieving things very early has been uh, has been great, and and it's you know I've just been incredibly fortunate in that way. Um, and, you know, I've paid for it since I've had my you know any long term writing or creative career is going to have its ups and downs, but I was I was lucky enough to get some real unexpected validation right at the beginning which you know as i said a couple of minutes ago is huge if you're starting out as a writer so yeah i was very lucky did you find that that kind of like propelled you to more or was it quite intimidating to follow it up it's a bit of both um with the short stories by the time um the manager cats won a short story i'd already written another four or five or whatever and i've always been quite dogged and patient and i know that i knew that okay this is gonna be a long road um and it's it's a lifestyle choice rather than necessarily a career. You know, if you're a writer, that's something that it's not even a choice. If if once you've discovered that that's what you want to do, then that's what you're going to do. Um, and so, from that point of view, I didn't find the short story thing particularly um, difficult. I mean, the the novel is slightly different because only forward, you know, having basically written what would be categorized as 
horror short stories or uncanny short stories or dark fictionals, that kind of thing. I then completely out of the blue, my first novel was basically science fiction. Um, and that was weird because it, it did get bought. Um, it did win an award. And then I was, I had classic second novel syndrome of, well, can I do this again? Um, do I want to do that same kind of thing again? So, you know, there, there are, as a, as a writer, there, there are always going to be these stages of, of difficulty and, and, and conflict within what you're doing and what you want to do. Um, but you just have to bowl through them, really. In the story notes, you write a little about fate in relation to the, the man who drew cats. And you, you, you write this really nice kind of story behind the story about how one thing led to another. And at any point that could have gone gone awry and, and you wouldn't be where you are now perhaps one thing two things that jumped out at me from that um the first you mentioned that you were influenced by stephen king and peter straub after reading the talisman at, at just the right time now i would argue that there's not a a horror or even speculative writer alive right now who, who isn't in some ex, to some extent influenced by Stephen King, even if it's in rejection of King, they're still influenced by him. But I could really see Stephen King in some of your stories. Not all. Uh, I think there are, there are other authors that I see in the background of others, but I can really see King in some of them. Do you still feel like you've carried that influence of King with you? I think in some ways, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly at the beginning, I was extremely influenced by King. And, you know, I, I think the manager of Cats, you know, could, I'm not saying it's of that quality, but I'm saying in terms of its tone and its nature. It, it is of that quality, by the way. It very much is of that quality. <laughs> <laughs> well, bless you. But, um, but yeah, that, that was a clear early, early sort of influence. And I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think modern horror was reinvented by by Stephen King. And he is to a degree for a long time has been the center of gravity of it. And I, I think you put it very well. You either want to be like him or you make a decision that you want to do something slightly else. I think the lessons that I've taken from from King, which stay with me, it's very easy to for horror writing to be all about the gothic or to be all about trying to spook people and stuff. What I've always loved about King and the other writers that I like within the genre or other genres is A, a sense of story, be a sense of character, but almost primarily a sense of voice. Um, I, when he's when he's on form, I would read King writing about literally anything, simply because you just want to hear. It's like, it's like your favorite relative or 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 the the guy you go to in the pub who's just brilliant at telling stories, and you sit down and you think, oh, brilliant, he's going to tell me something, and I'm just going to sit here and listen to it, and. There's also, I mean, King varies because there are times when he's, he's been prey to a kind of literary elephantiasis and they balloon out. But when he's not doing that, and uh, there's a kind of directness about the prose, which is something that increasing, always, but increasingly I'm, I'm, I'm keen on. I don't have a lot of time for people who are playing around too much on the page and, and saying, oh, look at look at this. This is fancy writing. I want I want someone to sit me down, engage me and tell me a story. So that I think is still a kind of lodestar for what I try to do. So you, you've teed up several of my questions there. Um, but first of all, to come back and say that I completely agree with you about King, that it's, I, I've, I've long had this theory that he's he's not actually a horror writer, that he's a, an yeah. American realist who happens to be filtering this stuff through. I, I, absolutely. I, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I th- and I think, I think there have been times when he's chafed against that. I mean, when you look at the Bachman books, actually a lot of those <clears throat> feel more like, 
dark literary fiction uh, or dark, I don't know, mainstream fiction than actual horror. Um, and I think that's absolutely true. I think I think also as a chronicler of small town life, he he there's an element of that kind of Garrison Keillor feeling to him um, in terms of just just making something feel feel very real. And I, uh, I so basically a long winded way of saying I think you're absolutely right. Thank you. But that that leads me into what I was saying about your sort of like king like um, tone in certain in certain parts. And but just to clarify, this is not me in any way saying you're a derivative of King. It's very much your own tone of voice. Mm. But you, you mentioned a moment ago that reading King feels like, you know, he could be talking to you in a bar. My favourite stories um, in this collection of yours have exactly that same quality. So my 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 favourite story um, is This Is Now. I thought This Is Now is was just just it's just a beautiful tale. Uh, I mean, just to just to kind of titillate the the listeners it's a story about aging and friendship and small towns and it has this like lovely warm heart and a really scary mystery that's never quite resolved and some other ones there that like the man who drew cats itself is a tale that's kind of being told around a bar uh there's a story in here called the handover that i'm not sure i fully understand uh i'm going to ask you off air to explain it to me but yeah you you adopt this very readable conversational tone like you're being told this story late at night when you're the last two people left in the bar. Is that a natural thing for you or has it been cultivated? It's certainly not cultivated. It's kind of, it's just, it's just the way, I mean, I believe I might in that all those three stories are told in the first person. And that's something that has always been my favorite kind of voice, really. Um, I've experimented a lot with third person and sometimes it's useful um, and I do actually enjoy it sometimes because there are some things you can do with that kind of perspective that you can't do in first person. But I generally feel most comfortable in that first person voice. And um, just to go go back to something you said, um, you know, you saying that, you, that there are hints of, hints of King in, in some of the stories, you know, I don't, I don't take that as a kind of, oh, you're a derivative of King whatsoever, because I think when you're writing and you're learning to write, one of the things that's most important to do is to, you know, nobody comes born with their own voice. You, you find your voice by reading a variety of different books and figuring out which bits, which bits suit you, which bits you're drawn to, which bits help bring out what it is that you want to do and the kind of writer you want to be. Because um, interesting, now I think about it, I think King is almost, I mean, not exclusive, but he writes a lot in the third person. Uh, rather than the third per- first person, so that's quite a difference there. But I think maybe still some of the flavour of it comes comes through. I'm sorry, I cannot remember what your original question was now. Uh, now can I actually? No, I, I asked if you if you cultivated <laughs> that tone of that conversational bar side tone of voice. No, is the, is the mercifully brief answer to that. I just I just try and as directly as possible say what's in my head. To be honest. So I mentioned This Is Now, which is one of my favourites in here. Another um, story I adored, so much so that I made my wife read it uh, in bed that night, is um, the story They Also Serve, which may be my favourite science fiction story in years. So again, I'm not going to give the ending away, but it's a story about a an interplanetary war in which this, this century has been placed in a space station light years away and for 30 years he hasn't seen a soul or heard anything that's going on and his only companion is a robotic cat um, and it's about what happens when he hears a voice over the radio and it 
at it, I mean, it's got a sadness and it, and it has got a kind of existential horror at its heart, but it, it's also a very kind of lighthearted, whimsical story in many ways, quite Ray Bradbury. And a lot of your stories have got that that balancing of, of darkness and light. But but then again, I was every time I read one of those and thought, oh, okay, I've got a handle on who this guy is. There was a story like something like Better to Receive, which is the 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 genesis of your novel Spares, mm. or there was a story called more tomorrow which has an horrendous final line uh, and a story called <laughs> what you make it which you know has a character who is a self-confessed child rapist i mean they go into really dark territory how do you reconcile those different styles in your head do you know when you go into a story which way it's going to go how dark it's going to get I, I think I do pretty much. Um, I, just just to start off, I'm delighted to hear you saying that about uh, They Also Serve, because that was a weird story for me. Um, it's one of the very, very few kind of science fictional short stories that I've written. And I remember writing that and thinking, well, okay, the kind of people I normally show short stories to, I'm just not going to publish that. So I put it to one side for an awfully long time. Um, and it's a story that I, I've, I've always had a soft spot for. So I'm just, I'm delighted that it landed with you. Um yeah, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this right at the beginning in terms of range and, and stuff. And, you know, again, like you know, we're talking about Stephen King, there's 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 a degree to which he is the modern center of gravity of horror. And I think in a way, Ray Bradby is a, is a, is a writer who I kind of revere almost more than any, although I haven't, you know, reread him recently, because he was able to just bring that Ray Bradbury thing across a range you know he wrote science fiction he wrote horror he wrote a whole bunch of you know very lyrical stuff but it was always his voice it was always his sensibility um and i think you know within all of us you know whether or not we we create for a living there's a you know we all contain multitudes and there are story you know stories that come into my head which are basically i want that kind of mood that you've described and there are other ones where i come in and say okay well i'm i'm gonna fuck you up with this one um i've just had a really bad thought and now i'm gonna put it in your head and the great thing about short stories is that that is the ideal delivery mechanism for certain types of thing i think certain types of horrendous idea certain types of elegiac atmosphere certain types of observation they are best suited by the short form um and you know i i i write because it's a living but i also write because it's what i enjoy and it's what i do and i don't want to kind of trap myself into feeling that i can only do one kind of thing which is why the short stories themselves again i don't want to sound too mystical about it but they they often kind of just announce themselves as okay this one's going to feel like this or this one's going to feel like that and i just try to do my best not to get in the way um, of them and to just put them down on page as coherently and directly as possible and let let the idea do the work. Yeah, I like that idea, getting out of the way of them. I, I've written a couple of short stories, a, a bit like yourself, but to less dramatic success. I, I've written two short stories in my life that I've completed. I started quite late and had them both published. So I've never had a rejection. Um, but I am an atrocious short story writer because I get in the way of it. And my, I have this theory right. that writing a short story isn't creating something. It's excavating something that it already exists and you have to get it out of the quarry without breaking it. I couldn't agree more. I think that's absolutely how I feel about it as well. I think 
you know, there are some people who, I know it's happened to me a couple of times in my life where I've had an idea for a short story and it's taken me weeks or in some cases even a couple of years to kind of land it. Um, not of constant work, obviously, but coming back and coming back. But very often I try to get a short story done in two days max, three days at the, at the outside, because it is exactly that thing of, it's like you're carrying something home and don't drop it, don't drop it, don't drop it, get it home. Um, and so for me, it's very often a matter of just doing it as quickly as possible, because otherwise you will get in the way of it. You will start second guessing yourself. You will start working too hard at the pros. You'll start thinking, oh, maybe I should add this. And very often, I think just trusting your intuition, trusting whatever bit of you it is that comes up with the ideas, knows what it's doing better than you do. You've got to do the craft. You've got to get it down there on paper. You've got to do certain bits of work. And then you've got to sell it. And then you've got to do all those real world things. But I pretty firmly believe that there's some other bit of you which is only slightly susceptible to your control, which delivers the actual story itself exactly as you say, here it is, get it out, be gentle with it, then put it down. And you mentioned before that you don't like to read uh, stories that are too self-aggrandizing or too clever, clever on the page. You like something that is that is mm. relatively straightforward. What I find refreshing about this collection, because I mean, I read a lot for life and for this podcast generally, and I love short stories, but you read the, the style of short story these days is this kind of proto-modernist, vignette that's all yeah. internalized monologue and no payoff and yeah it's great in its yes. place but it's nice now and again to go back and read a kind of you know amazing stories type short that will that finishes and has a resolution and there are very few navel gazing vignettes in this collection and in many places they actually end with that kind of roll dial punchline albeit sometimes very dark um that isn't a question, yeah. it's just an observation, but I do love that. I love that these end with that, that often that line that turns the entire thing on its head. It, it's an art form that's been a little bit lost, I think, in short fiction. Yeah, it's, there's a place for everything. I, you know, once in a while, there are, there are writers who I enjoy, like, you know, uh, I don't know, Martin Amos or um, Sorbello or someone, where you are reading it for the prose, you are reading it for the kind of endless rolling delight in language. And that's great. And it has its place. And I'm, I'm certainly not against that. Um, but I think there's also a, you know, my, you know, stories came from people sitting around campfires, telling their day or evoking something or telling a dream or something. And in that circumstance, you know, people waited for it to finish. You didn't want someone just talking forever and then stopping and you thinking, well, what was that about? Why did they make me listen to that? And I think there's a kind of elemental campfire nature of short stories that sets up an expectation that at the end of it, people are going to know that it's finished. That's what I'm getting at. These feel like tales told around a campfire uh, that will send you back to your tent a little bit unnerved. And that that it's a, it's a weirdly <laughs> old-fashioned yet refreshing thing because it doesn't happen anymore. What is it with you and cats? <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I love cats. I adore cats. Um, you know, if I had to make a list of my 10 favorite people, then at least three of them would be cats, probably. Um, I just, there's just something, something about their nature. Um, I, I just find extremely amicable and, and, and pleasing and, and, and lovable, to be honest. I, and I, I also, and I'm, I'm sure the same could be said of, of dogs, but to be able to have what feels like a, a, a sort of deep and sincere relationship with another creature that does not, it is not predicated on language. You know, you can't lie to a cat. Um, 
the cat knows who you are in a way that that you can't sort of fake. And I I, I think there's something very enriching about that. So I I don't know. It's I, it's a, a true story. I am very I am very fond of cats. Precisely why I don't know. It is it it's the way it is. That's right. Because I'm not a cat person, but you made me a cat person in some of these tales. I was I was yeah. <laughs> Are you a dog person? I'm very much a dog just... person. Yeah, I've just got a new puppy, and he's ruining right. my life. But yeah, I'm very happy with him. I've never had a dog. I mean, it's it's possible that I I might have a a different perspective if I'd had a dog. But I mean, it may also be down to the fact that I've always got the sense that the dogs are very much pack animals, and there's a hierarchy, and you know, the owner is theoretically at the top of it, and there's a kind of pack thing going on. Whereas cats, they're not part of a pack. They don't they don't care. Uh, they will be at the top of any given hierarchy or to the side in a whole different hierarchy of their own. And you just you just do that thing with them. And I think I'm I'm probably not that much of a pack animal. So I just kind of rub along with the cats and that, that suits me. Yeah, cats are basically creatures. They're not pets. They're creatures that tolerate you living in their house. Yes, exactly. Yes. Whereas my, my dog wouldn't last five minutes without me. So um <laughs> To, to ask a final question, because I, I promised I would. So it now feels a bit like a bit of an addendum to a, a meaty conversation about your collection. But to briefly address your writing as Michael Rutger, in case we have any listeners who are, you know, interested in that. You've written two books as Michael Rutger, The Anomaly and The Possession. And they I've only read the first, um, but they are proper kind of, from what I can glean, balls to the wall, action, adventure, horror novels, kind of the X-Files meets Tomb Raider, you know, etc. They're quite different to what you've written elsewhere. Where did that come from? Good question. I, I wish I had the answer. Um, actually, I mean, the possession, the follow-up, if you do get around to reading that, in, in my typical style, I've now... You're absolutely right. It normally is. That's a very, very good description of it, actually. Um, X-Files meets sort of Tomb Raider or something. You know what? I, I for... I. Most of my life, I've been interested in kind of anomalous phenomena, fortiana, things that don't fit with our, our, how we feel about ourselves as humans or about his, history or prehistory. You're speaking to the choir here, by the way, Michael. I, I, <laughs> I once went to a 14 times convention and watched a man give an entire presentation on mermaids. So you were speaking to the right kind of audience. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it, there's, there's something just, isn't there? There's just something so fascinating about all that stuff. I never found a way of transporting my fascination with that onto the page in a novel. And then I had this idea, which actually I'd been kicking around for about a decade. Um, you know, originally the anomaly was going to be, was going to be a movie and it was going to be set in Russia and there was a whole bunch of different stuff to it. And then I went to write the anomaly about two years ago. I suddenly thought, Oh, you could do it like this. And I just sat down and I just whammed out a first draft having more fun than I've had writing for a very long time because it was just that kind of visceral, oh, and then this happens, what happens next? Oh, then this happens. And it was great fun, great fun to write. Um, the possession has swerved a little bit more towards a kind of bit more Michael Marshall Smith short story in terms of atmosphere and in terms of subject and so forth. But yeah, it was just, it was just, as you say, very different to what I'd done before, which is why my 75th writing name um, became a thing. Um, but but yeah, just having I, I enjoy the characters, and so I will. I've got caught up in other stuff for most of this year, but I think the next book I write will almost certainly be another Michael Rutger because I just like hanging out with those characters. Excellent, that's great news. Uh, brief question: You said it was going to be set in Russia originally. Was it going to be related to the Dyatlov Pass mystery? It wasn't actually. No, it was. It was partly because of I have a I kind of weird thing with Russia. My 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 father was a academic as i mentioned earlier and he took us the whole family camping 
in Russia during the Brezhnev Soviet era, which was a zany thing to do looking back. Um, but it was very, it's funny, I, particularly as the years go by, I've realized that it had quite a kind of impression on me because A, we met, at that point, the Soviet Union was seen as such a kind of grim monolith of, and, you know, the threat to Western civilization. And we spent these weeks in Russia just kind of meeting actual Russians who are lovely, thoughtful, interesting, um, caring, uh, quite melancholic, often, people. Um, And so there was partly that, you know, getting behind this wall, but there was also that time, and this is something that I, I still find fascinating, it's probably kind of slightly reflected in some of the fiction. It was almost like a an urban modern fantasy because they were normal people, as we swiftly learned, but in this entirely different system that worked completely differently and was to a degree impenetrable to, to the outside. I mean, my father had taken the trouble to learn a certain amount of Russian and he was working with um, Russian academics at the time. So he could kind of lift the curtain a little bit, but it was um, it was fascinating. Um, and so I think there's a bit of me that kind of wants to try and revisit that experience. And so that was partly why it wasn't it wasn't to do with the Diatlov Pass incident. Fascinating though that is. Uh, yeah, I've mentioned Diatlov Pass on about eight podcasts so far without giving any clarity <laughs> on what it is. Everyone go Google Diatlov Pass. It will blow your mind. Yeah. Would you be willing to come back on the show when the next Michael Rutger novel is out as Michael Rutger and we can do a deep dive into all this weird shit that's going on? I would be delighted. I might even learn to do a slightly different voice so it sounds like you're talking to a different writer. But yeah, no, that would be great. I would love to. Right, well, let's finish off this interview with my four rapid-fire questions, if that's okay for you. Yeah. I just want your... First thing that comes to mind, I think I probably know the answer to the first thing I'm going to ask you now. We've probably covered it already, but I'm going to ask anyway. So question one, what was your gateway to horror? Yeah, we did sort of cover this. I mean, looking back, I suspect probably it was in reality Ray Bradbury because I read him when I was a young teenager and so forth. And so I think some of that kind of atmosphere and storytelling was there, but it would definitely be The Talisman by Stephen King and Peter Straub. Have you ever read it since? The Talisman. I I read. I mean, for, I I don't have the time now, but for a long time I was an inveterate rereader. I've read that book five six times. Um, I've read most of the the King books that many times because I was just absorbing it at that point. And the Talisman. I mean, at some point I probably will reread that. I won't reread Black House um, ever. Um, but for those who don't know, which is the the follow up. I mean, one of the things that I think is so. I felt so lucky to read The Talisman first is because, you know, Stephen King, we've covered as a great writer. Peter Straub, another amazing um, writer who has done horror, but has also done some thriller or mystery, has an extremely literary quality to a lot of what he does. And one of the things that makes The Talisman such a kind of, for me, masterpiece is it's got the best of both of them. It's got It's got the directness and storytelling motor and, character work of King at his best and it's got the slightly cooler more reflective prose um, of Straub and it's just a, it's a brilliant combination and uh, if anyone hasn't read it go and read it and speak to me about Wolf and if you don't cry <laughs> there's something deeply wrong with you yeah, um, yeah. oh broke my heart uh, question two uh, if you could recommend one book not by yourself or any of yourselves to our readers what would it be and why uh, I could give an annoying uh, answer to that because I don't, again, I don't have 
one particular book. It depends very much on what kind of mood I am in, what I'm looking for. I would instead advise people to just read as widely as possible, particularly if they particularly if they're they're hoping to write themselves, which, you know, I know is part of, you know, what you're interested in, what podcast is about. I think reading a variety of stuff um, from male and female, from different cultures, from different genres, that that's what I find interesting. So normally I'd hammer you on that, but as it's going to be the last podcast of the year and it's been a rough (laughs) year, I think that's a nice message for everyone to take away with them. Question three, if you had a piece of advice for a fledgling horror novelist, what would it be? Um, actually, I'll, 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 that's, that's a good question. It's very hard to answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring the last answer forward a little bit. I mean, I think for a fledgling horror author, or indeed for any kind of author, but almost especially a horror, because it's very easy when when you're interested in one particular genre, maybe even particularly horror, because there's there's a lot out there. There's a there's a long history. Um, I think actually go for two things. One, you've got to read a lot. You've got to you've got to know the history of the genre, understand it from you know way back to know where you're coming from. But I'd also say read widely, don't just read horror because otherwise you get trapped in a kind of hermetically sealed bubble. And horror does certain things very well, but then so does science fiction, so does literary fiction, so does nonfiction. You know, there's a, there's a kind of directness to good journalism, which is a useful thing to bring into your writing. Even read screenwriting, read some screenplays because Again, it's very easy to get trapped into just thinking that you need to tell the audience everything, and sometimes you can show them. You can show two, and if you don't, you can show this scene. You can show the next scene. You don't have to lead them by the hand and explain the joins. Let the audience, let the reader do that, because if they do that, it'll feel much more real to them. It'll feel much more as if they're part of the experience. So I think the first half answer to that would be read widely and read a lot, and the second would be just just write. Um, just just always be writing, always be thinking about what writing and take it easy on yourself because it's not it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And as Hemingway, I believe, once said, the first draft of everything will be shit. And that's <laughs> a, a truth um, that, that's important. It takes you a while to learn and accept, but it's true. And to come back to a metaphor that you, you kind of mentioned earlier in terms of going out to the quarry and finding the rock, the first draft of everything is going to the quarry carving out a huge great oblong and then getting that back to the studio don't expect it to be any more finished than that the second third draft when you edit it with somebody that's when you start find that's when you start finessing but you won't even know what it is that you're writing until you've completed the first draft and so cut yourself some slack individual sentences it doesn't matter even paragraphs even chapters even the order of things all of that is malleable you are in control until that thing is printed between two covers and so give yourself the time to realize that writing is a process it's not an event that happens on one particular day and just just be kind to yourself and let it flow well you, you've made my day there because i i am twenty five thousand words into a first draft and it is pretty shit and excellent it, it's, <laughs> it's going to be about if, if it carries on this pace it's going to be a four hundred thousand word novel so i'm glad to hear it i can ch- chisel that away in the, in the re-edit so thank you. you you may need you may need to chop that back a little bit but yeah it's sort of I, you know honestly i've written prologues as the last thing of the book i've i've shifted chapters around i've cut characters out i put new characters in I've written whole chapters on what I thought was the big important idea that everybody needed to understand. And then when it's been published, it's been chopped back to four lines. It's it's a process. You don't know until you've got that first draft. And then you then you kind of roll up your sleeves and say, okay, how do I make this what it needs to be?
Thank you for that. And to end on a on a fitting note, um, my favourite question to ask everyone, this is the last time I'm going to ask it in 2020, um, what truly scares you? That's, a, that's an interesting question and one that's hard to kind of... I tend not to be scared by particular events or and certainly not things like you know particular horror tropes and so forth i think what scares me is just the general the general gaps there are in life for things to go wrong i mean you you know you mentioned in regard to a story note earlier the idea of fate and the idea that i could not have met certain people in my life just because i turned a different way or not gone out that evening i find that a bit scary i find the the fragility of relationships and of life um quite unnerving um which is why i sometimes speak to them in prose and one of the things that i think is very, is a great strength of horror is the way that it will allows you to deal metaphorically with certain things so for example um i don't find the idea of zombies scary um in and of themselves because they don't exist um i, I can as far as i'm or yet let's put it that way but for me zombies for example have always been um symbolic of cancer in that they're something which proceeds slowly, but irrevocably. And you clear the compound and then it happens again. And then gradually gets more and more and more and more and more. And so I think one of the, the solaces and cathartic elements of writing certain types of genre fiction is you get either consciously or otherwise to deal with these kind of very human experience, human nature fears and but doing it in a way that feels safely at one remove um i don't know whether that's an answer to your question but i guess real life the slow implacable progress of of real life is the thing that tends to unnerve me more than anything else there's nothing like finishing a year on, on a kind of moment of existential dread so um <laughs> it's what i'm here for it's my job it's literally yeah, my job yeah <laughs> um yeah well thank you for that um and thank you for taking the time to talk to us i hope you have a lovely new year and i hope next year is better for all of us michael marshall smith thanks for talking scared pleasure thanks very much so that's it my final interview for 2020 what a great year it's been for uh, this podcast and, and a great way to finish. Whimsy, horror and Trump bashing all in one conversation. What's not to love? I really cannot recommend Michael's collection enough. It's a special edition sort of thing from Subterranean. And yeah, it's not the cheapest book you'll ever buy. But by God, it's a handsome edition. And it's one you will read again and again. Plus, you, you'll be supporting an independent press during a really hard time for publishing. So... It's a win-win situation. Go get a copy and tell me what your favourite story is. I think it says a lot about you. Speaking of favourite stories, though, after a year in which I set up a podcast with, with very little aspiration and gathered more listeners and far greater guests than I could have dreamed of from my little spare bedroom, it, it does seem the right time to look back a little at the year. But rather than talking about me, I'd like to talk about the sheer amount of fantastic horror that's been published in 2020. It has been a crazy year. <laughs> that's an understatement. But it's been a crazy year in which fiction has had to compete with headlines. Yet somehow, against those odds, authors have pulled out of the bag. And it's been an incredible 12 months in which horror has shown itself to be more diverse, more agile in responding to the world. 
and more creative than ever. I could list dozens and dozens of books here, but in keeping with tradition, here's my top 10 horror books of 2020. Some of these have been featured on the show, others either predated Talking Scared or slipped through the cracks in my schedule. And again, do bear in mind that this is a list compiled from books that I've read personally. And there are no doubt many, many more that I've missed that fully deserve a place on this list. If I have missed you in 2020, then I hope I catch you in 21 or 22 when your next book is out. But for now, here we go. The Talking Scared Top 10 Horror Books of 2020. At 10, we've got The Return by Rachel Harrison. Um, I interviewed Rachel recently about this book, even though it came out much earlier in the year. Basically, it scared the hell out of me. If anyone out there has got kind of anxiety symptoms like I have on occasion, this book will get under your skin because the protagonist has all of those strange sensory obsessions that, you know, keep us anxious people up at night. Uh, at its heart, though, it's a novel about friendship that gets into all the nooks and dirty crannies of long-term relationships between friends. It's got an incredible setting, which really does kind of set your teeth and hairs on edge with its strange, gaudy, haunted interiors. The Return by Rachel Harrison. At nine, it's The Devil and the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. So this is Stuart's second novel after The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and it is just as complex and twisting and turning as his debut. This one has got a fantastic historical setting on board a 16th century trading ship that may or may not be haunted by some kind of strange demon. It's also got a genuinely likeable hero and, and you never know where it's going to go. There is more incident per chapter, per page in this book than you get in a lot of so-called elevated horror. It's The Devil and the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. At eight, I've actually got a short story collection, which don't often make my top tens of the year. Um, I do like the form, but often they lack the, the impact that a novel has. But John Langan's Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies is a belter. <laughs> it's really wide ranging. It, it goes from old school pulp with like subterranean dinosaur aliens um, through to some like, you know, small town horror, some apocalyptic horror a lot of great cosmically inflected horror, all written in beautiful prose. As I said in my chat with John, though, the thing that I will always remember from this this collection is the ghost T-Rex. Uh, if that doesn't float your boat, I don't think we can be friends. At seven, it's The Hollow Places by T. Kingfisher. Now, this one stands out because it's one of those rare books that truly manages to be both scary and laugh out loud funny. I have an issue with, with the whole notion of comedy horror because generally it falls too much on one side of that divide. This book, as with her first novel, The Twisted Ones, gets it absolutely pitch perfect. You are laughing your throat out one minute and terrified the next. It's a great riff on, on a classic tale by Algernon Blackwood. She weaves that in beautifully. And it's another novel from, from T. Kingfisher with a great animal sidekick. So yeah, this one is old school. It's fun, but it's also, it is, it is a gut punch of a novel, The Hollow Places by T. Kingfisher. At six, We've got a book that wasn't featured on the show simply because of timing, and that's Devolution by Max Brooks. 
So you, you may recognize Max Brooks' name from World War Z. And here he brings that same pseudo-real found footage, found document vibe to a tale about Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Uh, for fans of cryptids, as I think, you know, cryptozoology, as I think I've shown myself to be on this show, um, it really is a treasure trove of anecdote and history. It kind of leads you through the folklore of, of Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest without cluttering up the story. Um, it's about this this small group of ecologically minded rich people who decide to live off grid in this this like high techno commune um, in the Pacific Northwest. And when they're cut off by a natural disaster, they, they, they quickly discover what living close to nature really means. It's satire and horror, again, perfectly pitched. And it's a great ride. Devolution by Max Brooks. Definitely check that one out. So into the top half of the table now. Um, and at number five, it's a book that I sang from the rooftops in the first few weeks of this show. Uh, and that's It Will Just Be Us by Joe Kaplan. So simply put, this is the best ghost story I've read this year and for quite a few years. It's the, Well, I made the point at the time that it is the continuation of a legacy that I see from The Haunting of Hill House into The Shining. And now we've got It Will Just Be Us. It's that calibre. Um, it manages to be both truly frightening with some of its imagery. I mean, there is one there is one moment where a, a child runs spider-like down this hallway um, in a way that is much scarier than the same thing in The Exorcist. Um, it's Yeah, it, it is quite an unsettling novel, but it's also filled with pathos and, and scenes of humour where these three women in this family have to organise their own dynamic against this backdrop of a haunting. And and what Joe does with ghosts is revolutionary. It's an entirely new idea of what the ghost is and can be. So, yeah, it will just be us by Joe Kaplan at number five. Next, at number four, we've got Ruman Alarms, Leave the World Behind. It is potentially only tangentially a horror novel, but it's definitely the most frightening book I read in 2020. It's very much of the moment, a tale of potentially fake news and suspicion against a ambiguous apocalyptic backdrop. It's cinematically inspired, which is actually a theme that runs throughout this list, I've found. And it feels very much like a literary version of the kind of horror that Jordan Peele is creating with Get Out or Us. But it's also a cultured classic piece of literature that reads like a modern version of Shirley Jackson or De Maurier. It's a classic. It'll be around for years. So now we're into the top three, the uh, the big boys of 2020. And at number three, it's The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Probably the biggest impact horror of the year. One of the big releases of the year, full stop, really. It set social media alight. It's a breakout novel for someone who's already been a star in the, the indie horror firmament. It's deeply unusual in both character, tone and structure. You never know where this novel's going. You're always guessing. And it's got a monster and a villain for the ages, the elk-headed woman who is hunting down um, the protagonist. You know, if they make a film of this, she will be immediately in that pantheon with Freddy and Jason and Candyman and the girl from the ring. Fantastic villain. It's great for diversity in horror as well, because Stephen Graham Jones sets this firmly 
in his own Native American tradition. And, and it's, it's good to have, you know, to pull that folklore and those different strands into horror because they are ripe for the telling. And it's just a phenomenal book. It, it's so, so impactful in every way, emotional and in terms of marketing. The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones at three. At two, we have The Loop by Jeremy Robert Johnson. So the more I've thought about this book as the year has gone by, the more I've loved it. It's so much fun. And I'm using that word fun a lot in this list because I have found a lot of the horror this year to be fun. It's been quite a nice a, a nice little element in, in such a bleak 12 months. Um, this one is like a David Cronenberg film bursting from the body of a, a teen drama with a central scene that is stupefying in its extremity and its daring. But amidst all that carnage and body horror and gore, Jeremy also manages to make you care very, very deeply about these underdog teens who are fighting all kinds of evils, both supernatural, you know, scientific and, and systemic. Um, it's another novel which manages to pair gore and grew and spectacle with real substance. The Loop by Jeremy Robert Johnson. It's just so much fun. Which brings us to our number one, my favourite horror novel of 2020. And I've got to admit, I'm surprised that, that this tops the list because it's not the kind of book that I would normally imagine I'd love this much. It's The Hunted by Gabriel Bergmoser. So I spoke to Gabe two weeks ago um, about this book, and I've only only loved it more since speaking to him. I, again, I, I've overused the word pulp, but by God, does it count here? Um, it's an Australian, very punchy, short horror novel, essentially about people hunting people and about a showdown in a, a roadside bar on a, an abandoned patch of Australian highway. It's so violent. It's so extreme. And it contains the single scariest and most upsetting scene I've read all year in which a character you have true empathy with meets his untimely end and you can feel his horror and his fear. And, and in a book that is basically a Tarantino scene on speed, it's quite an impressive thing to get that, that amount of feeling into it. Um, when I spoke to Gabe, we kind of we teased out all of these themes and 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 substantial subjects that that Gabe seemed a bit reluctant to to mention. I think he thought he would be seen as pretentious, but no, this is a book that really, really couples balls to the wall, throat choking horror with social and moral discussion. The Hunted by Gabriel Bergmoser. I read it in one night, and I cannot recommend it enough. So that's my top 10 of 2020. To recap, at 10, The Return by Rachel Harrison. At 9, The Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. At 8, Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies by John Langan. Number 7 was The Hollow Places by T. Kingfisher. At 6, it was Devolution by Max Brooks. Number 5 was Joel Kaplan's It Will Just Be Us. 4, Leave the World Behind by Roman Alam. Number three is The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. At second is The Loop by Jeremy Robert Johnson. And my number one favourite book of the year, The Hunted by Gabriel Bergmoser. That is quite the list for any year. And it goes without mentioning certain 
other books like Playing Bad Heroines by Emily Danforth, Survivor Song by Paul Tremblay, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia's Mexican Gothic, and The Blade Between by Sam Miller, all, you know, phenomenal novels, which in any other year would be top four, three, two. You know, what a year it's been. What do you think? I'd be very keen to hear your lists or your opinions on mine. Um, You can, you know, contact me via email, as ever, at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or, you know, respond on Twitter at talkscaredpod. I'll be putting this list up there. So, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think. And listeners, I cannot stress my gratitude and delight enough at having you come along for the ride with this podcast. You know, you set something like this up and you have no idea how it's going to go, how it's going to succeed or fail. And there's still a lot of progress to be made. One of the things I want to do is increase social media following um, and increase the week-on-week listeners. But I'm astounded at what's developed so far. So thanks to each and every person who has taken the time to listen, review, retweet, or email me. It's brilliant to know there are so many people out there interested in horror, which, by the way, is healthier and more diverse a genre than it's been in decades. And 2021 is shaping up well both from a horror perspective, from a a personal podcasting standpoint, and let's face it, from a generally being alive stance. I'll be back next week without without a guest for once, apologies, um, to give my hopefully brief rundown of the best and most exciting horror coming next year. I've already read a lot of it, and, you know, two books in question already are up there with the greatest horror I have ever ever read in my life and and they are The Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean and The Last House on Needless Street by Katrina Ward. Both of those writers will be on the show in the spring to talk about their books along with many other fantastic contemporary dabblers in the dark. So until then, eat and drink your leftovers, make your resolutions and plan your adventures when the world reopens. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.